well. Uh, As is obvious this morning, we're leaving the narrative of Samuel behind, and we're beginning our studies in the Gospel of John. Uh, I'm excited to study this Gospel together. It really is such an extraordinary collection of explicit revelatory truth about Jesus. It's truth that we need uh, to understand clearly about Jesus. Jesus is the, is the revelation of God in the flesh. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah, uh, God's anointed one. Uh, John's record here in this book is a record that's full of the glory of the God of the gospel as manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and so what we're going to do this morning, and, and then we're actually going to take next week for this as well, just in terms of an approach to our study, and instead of jumping right into the prologue and, and, uh, and doing a verse-by-verse exposition, which is our pattern and will be our pattern as we get going, instead what we're going to do is we're going to take this week and next just to orient ourselves with John's account of the ministry of Christ. And I'll, and I'll give, a, give a rationale for that here. Um, as you know, in what feels very much like a former life now, I was once a, a sixth grade reading and language arts teacher. And when it comes to teaching the subject of reading to middle school students, aside from it being an extreme sport, uh, something that we were trained to do as teachers was, was walk, through, walk students through what good readers do. It's a conversation that you regularly have in reading class. And so we would talk about what, what are the kinds of things that good readers do. And you all do the things good readers do without really thinking about it. We just do. But, but in terms of teaching kids how to read well, this was a, an important um, consideration to cover. Uh, so, for example, in sixth grade reading class, we would talk about how good readers uh, make inferences as they read. Or we talk about how good readers are able to summarize the things they read. Or good readers are making predictions as they go through a, a story. They're able to identify things like rising action in the plot line. And, and they learn how to identify main ideas in nonfiction writing. All of these kinds of things. It's a long list of things that good readers do. Uh, but in that long list, one element that was always included... Uh, would be the instruction that when, when good readers begin a new book, they pre-read. Uh, they pre-read. So, for example, uh, if you're a person who loves reading, imagine you're holding that next book in your hands. Uh, and, and I say that with, with a sacred tone. You're holding the book in your hands. There's something to that, isn't there? Kindles are lovely, but there's something about the book. Huh? Something about the book. You're holding the book in your hands. What do you do? Well, you probably pre-read first, don't you? You flip it open and you, you flip it over and you look on the back cover and maybe you read the description of the book. Or, or maybe you get online and you, you research who the author is of the book. You want to know a little bit more about their own background or if they've written any other books along these same lines. Uh, you might flip it open and read through the first uh, few pages just to get a sense. Is this, is this historical fiction? Is this fantasy? What is this? Uh, you do all these natural kind of pre-reading things that help orient you with what's going on in the book. Um, you, you might even do what, what, we, what teachers would, would talk about with students. You might take a field trip through the book. So, so you open it up and you notice maybe the chapters have uh, titles. And so if the chapters have titles, uh, can you get a sense of where the plot is going as you go through the book without reading the end and ruining it? But can you get a sense of, of what's happening in the story as you're, as you're going to be engaging with the, with the material there? Um, so, so good readers do a lot of things when they, when they come... To, to taking on a new book, but, but one of the things that they do, first of all, is they, they do this pre-reading sort of thing, a 30,000-foot flyover, because then when you get into the book, uh, you have a framework for what's going on, and you can start to decipher uh, what, things, what things are happening in the context of the, of the whole uh, story, in the context of what you know about the author, and all of those kinds of things. 
And so that's really what we're going to attempt to do with the Gospel of John this Sunday and next. We're going to, we're going to practice some pre-reading before we get into our verse-by-verse expositions, uh, because in doing this, uh, we'll, we'll just be more prepared. We'll have, we'll have a framework set. We'll have expectations set. We'll be prepared to digest even some of the thematic realities that are in the Gospel of John regarding uh, the reality of who Jesus is. Uh, so that's what we're going to start doing today. We're going to have a pre-reading, part one, we can call it that, of John's Gospel. Um, and, and as we come to something like this, even in saying this, I think, I, I think we could speak this way because we're already talking about children reading in school, but, but I feel a little bit like, like Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. Do you know that story, Mike, Mike Mulligan? If you don't, you should order the book. You know, Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel, Marianne, they have this enormous task before them. They have this huge task, and they're on a clock to do the task. And that's really how I feel coming to, to do an overview of John's gospel, because it's, in a sense, it's a huge task. We could spend a whole series of sermons just flying over John at 30,000 feet and seeing the, the thematic connections and all of this glorious truth that he's tying together in those, in those kinds of ways. We're not going to do that. We're just going to do two Sundays worth of it, which you know for me is hard. Um, but but uh, there's just a whole bunch here. And so we're going to attempt to provide uh, this study this morning and, uh, and it, it's a huge task, it's a glorious task, and we'll, we'll just see how far we get. Um, so with that, with that said, I'll give you a little bit of a framework for how we're going to do this. What we're going to do for our pre-reading of John today is we're going to cover what we can call the basics. So we're going to talk about uh, the author of John's Gospel, we're going to talk about the date of, of John's Gospel being written, and we're going to talk about the purpose of John's Gospel. Those are three basic uh, basic things that we want to have fresh in our minds as we study this. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at two more headings. The first heading is going to be called the sevens. The next heading is going to be called the individual. So those are two other elements that really help us make sense of what John is, is doing in his gospel. So we'll save those for next week. This week, we're just going to do some, some pre-reading with the basics. So author, t- author date, and purpose is, is what we're going to focus on. Um, so that's, that's where we're headed. So we'll get into this, the basics. Now, when it comes to studying the four Gospels of of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we know, each of the Gospels brings unique elements of of truth that help reveal certain particular aspects of who Jesus is and what it means to know Him and follow Him. Uh, The four Gospel accounts can be be thought of as as facets of a diamond. So, So each side, each angle brings about a different perspective on the... On the, on the great value of what is here. All those facets put together help give us a, a full picture of beauty. Uh, so, so, for example, Luke's gospel. Luke uh, is, is an is a account of the good news about Jesus that's primarily speaking about, about who Jesus is for Gentile readers, for the non-Jew, um, with, with a particular emphasis along those lines in different ways as Luke unpacks things. Uh, but Luke has his particular emphasis. Mark, he provides a very succinct gospel record. Mark is the shortest and is also the fastest moving. You get a sense of action as you're going through Mark. He has the repeated word immediately, immediately, immediately. He's moving quickly through the narrative. Uh, and then Matthew, he brings a distinctively Jewish framework to his presentation of Christ, uh, which we also need. And, and so in, in each of these gospels, be, because they each provide God's revelation of who Jesus is and why He came and what it means to follow Him, they each provide a view of that like different facets on a precious stone. We need all of them if we're really going to appreciate the full splendor of the, of the gospel revelation of Jesus Christ. We need all of those. 
And John's gospel is no different. John writes his gospel to reveal to us that the person of Christ, but while John writes for, uh, for this, this gospel, this good news purpose, remember that's what gospel means, gospel means good news, while John writes for this good news purpose, he does so in an especially unique way. Uh, so sometimes the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're described as being the good news about Jesus from the earth up. All right, Jesus came as a man. He proved to be both God and man, dying and rising for our salvation. The first three Gospels, sometimes called the Synoptic Gospels, uh, they, they start from the earth up. John, however, is different in that his Gospel is described often as the good news about Jesus, not from earth up, but from heaven down. So, so if you just think about this, think, think about your knowledge of the Gospels. Luke, Luke begins with the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth as a, as a, as a baby. Uh, he comes into the world in human form. He's born of a woman. Matthew, Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy connecting Christ back to Abraham. So there's a human genealogy reflected there. Mark begins his Gospel with John the Baptist announcing Jesus as Jesus is introduced on the scene as a man from Nazareth. And, and, and then we get into John. And how does John begin? Well, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, so unlike Luke, this is not a birth narrative introduction to Jesus here in John. Unlike Matthew, this isn't a, a human lineage traced back to Abraham kind of introduction to John. Unlike Mark, this isn't a historical appearance on a... On a geographical scene of John the Baptist's ministry introduction to Jesus. No, this is entirely different in that this is an introduction to Jesus sourced in the divine realities of the eternal and revelatory personhood of God Himself coming from outside, coming from outside all space and time and entering into the realm of our mortal condition. It's, it's not earth up, it's heaven down as Jesus is introduced to us here. And so immediately we're drawn in. Who is this Jesus? What does it mean that we have this figure who's the eternal Word made flesh, who comes and dwells among us, the one through whom everything was made? In fact, there's not one thing that's ever been made that wasn't made through Him. Who is this eternal, obviously divine being that we're being introduced to here on the pages of John's Gospel? And as we seek to have that question answered throughout our studies of this Gospel, it also moves us to ask the question, who's giving us this account? Who's the one who's speaking to us about the eternal word made flesh? Who's the one who's writing this account to bring these, these things into our minds? We, we want to know who's providing an account of Jesus' life and ministry. And partly, we have that question because when speaking about the human author of John's gospel, uh, John's gospel is anonymous. In fact, all, all of the gospels are anonymous. Uh, no gospel, neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, nor John, have, have a name attached to them. Um, no, nothing like Paul's letters, for example, where Paul will begin his letter and say something like, you know, like Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Corinth. We know who wrote the, letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians because Paul puts his name on it, uh, something along those lines. But we don't have that in the gospels. All the gospels are, are formally anonymous. There's no name attached to them. However, uh, there is both internal within the text and external evidence that helps us be fairly certain of authorship in each, in each of the gospel accounts. But in the case of John, just, just as, an, as an example, 
uh, we have members of Jesus' 12-man disciple group mentioned in different ways. And we know John from the other Gospels. We know John is, is one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, but in this particular Gospel, we never have John's name mentioned as one of the disciples. So there's this, there's this name left out. However, if we start to chip away at, at who is and who isn't mentioned and who's present in, in instances where we know John was present, though he doesn't name himself here as we fill it in from other gospel accounts, it does become clear that John must be the author because we even have statements where the author includes himself as an eyewitness disciple. So for example, in chapter 1, he says things like, we observed Christ's glory. The author of this is a, is a disciple observer of all that he's going to recount for us here. Okay. So, so the author is this eyewitness, and, and with the omission of his name, we can do some math and figure out the name that's missing. It must be John who's writing. And then there's examples of external evidence as well, evidence outside the text of John's authorship. Uh, one, one example is that very early on in, ch- in church history, like as early as 150 A.D., uh, John is, is regularly referenced in ancient documents as the author of this gospel. Uh, so, so a generation that would have overlapped John's own generation uh, feels very free to say this is John's gospel, that he, that he wrote this for us, which is a very strong argument for, for authorship. And, and there are more. Uh, but all that to say, we can be, we can be very sure that, that John the disciple, who became John the apostle, uh, who, if you remember, he was, he was one of the sons of Zebedee, who Mark refers to as the sons of thunder, John and James. Uh, John was a disciple, son of Zebedee, uh, who, who authored also three letters in our, in our Bible. Jason did an exposition for us from 1 John a while back. Um, he also is the author of, of the book of Revelation. Uh, John is, is the human author of this gospel, and we can be, we can be uh, very certain about that. And, and it's worth uh, noting here that while John never refers to himself by name, he does refer to himself in a most interesting way all throughout the text. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Six times John refers to him that way in this gospel. And at first, that can, that can strike us as kind of strange. It almost strikes us as arrogant, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It almost sounds like Joseph bragging about his coat of many colors. You know? It's quite the statement to make. It can make us recoil a bit. Why would John speak about himself like that, the disciple whom Jesus loved? It, it, can, it can bother us. It sounds a bit off-putting at first. Um, but really, if we give ourselves to meditate on it a bit, it shouldn't be. Uh, we mentioned this already, but back in Mark's gospel, John, along with his brother James, who was the first apostle to be martyred in the book of Acts, uh, John was referred to as a son of thunder. A son of thunder. The, the reference, no doubt, speaks to a, a kind of quickness to anger, a brazenness that John and James were both known for. Um, and actually, we see this play out with John as, as we have an account in Luke chapter 9. You remember this? Of, of Jesus and his disciples. They, they go into a Samaritan village. They're rejected by that Samaritan village. And do you remember John's response? He takes great offense at the fact that this village rejected Jesus. And he, and he approaches Jesus and he says, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Right? Doesn't sound very gentle. But it sounds like what we'd expect from the sons of thunder, wouldn't it? Let's just call down fire. It's going to wipe them out. I can't believe they wouldn't pay attention to who you are. Don't they know? Let's just, let's just decimate the place. It's a very vengeful sounding thing to say. John was, John was rough, quick to anger us. No wonder they called him son, son of thunder. But then time goes by. 
And here we are, after all these events are recorded in the gospel, after Jesus ascends and John's move, John moves forward in his apostolic ministry. We'll talk about this in a bit. He's probably an old man as he writes this gospel. And he gets a new nickname at a popular level within the church. And he's not known then as the son of thunder, but he's actually known as the apostle of love. So, so John becomes known in this way primarily because in his writings, on the other side of Jesus' earthly ministry and ascension, all these things, John, more than any other author in Scripture, uses the word love. So it's over 80 times in his writing, he speaks about love, the love of Christ, the love of God for us. So from a son of thunder, call down fire from heaven on these people, to something like 1 John 3 where he says, this is the message you have heard from the beginning that you should love one another. From son of thunder to the apostle of love. What do you think happened to John? Well, we know what happened. John, in all his natural harshness, was personally confronted with the God so loved the world love of the Lord Jesus. And, and so we're not surprised he would refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. There's a transformation that took place within John's own heart. John doesn't call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in an exclusion of others kind of way. John calls himself the apostle whom Jesus loved as a devotional expression of the greatness of Christ's personal transformative kindness and grace extended to him. He, he recognizes that in a unique felt and personal way. There's going to be a very individualistic, in, in, a, in a positive sense, individual nature to John's gospel that we'll spend a little time on next week. But John, he recognizes this in his own life, uh, the apostle who Jesus loves. Paul actually does the same thing in Galatians to a certain extent when he, when he focuses on the personal love of Christ for him. In Galatians 2.20, you know, that, you know that passage where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Such a glorious passage. I've been crucified with Christ. Um, and, I, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Love me, Paul says, love me, right? The Apostle Paul, former murderer, love me. Or how about the Apostle John, a former vengeful man, loved me and gave himself up for me? It changes everything for Paul. It changes everything for John. This personal reality that the love of Christ has been extended to him, though he is somebody who doesn't deserve it. So John, the human author of this gospel, writes from a place of personally confessing the love of Jesus for him. And so scholars all across the board will speak of John's lack of, of mention of himself in this as a, a matter of, of an author's modesty, which is something that would oftentimes occur in Greek literature where, where, where an author who was going to say something that would reflect back in a complimentary way upon them, in a way that would reflect back positively upon them, they would omit their own name from the writing. And that's exactly what John is doing here. There's a humility expressed in the fact that when he, if he's going to talk about himself, he's not going to use his name. He's going to let that be a little mysterious as it, as it hangs out there. But when he is talking about himself, he's making sure that his identity is made very plain. I'm the one who Jesus loved. I'm the one who Jesus loved. So for all that can be said about Christ's love for the church, Christ's love for his people, Christ's love for the world and its bigness, Christ's love for the world and its badness, it repays us to take some time to simply sit with the fact of Jesus' personal love expressed to us. Jesus loves me. John is, I am, you are a personal follower of the Lord Jesus whom he loves. The cross of Christ proves his love for us. He loved you and me, gave himself up for us in order that we could have an eternity of life with him instead of death. And so I wonder, 
I just wonder, we can, we can check our own hearts and, and, and how we reflect on the significance of Christ's love uh, j- just by asking ourselves the question, can I sit in a room all, all alone maybe just to have a devotional moment and, and say with a full confession of heart, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. I'm the follower of Christ whom Jesus loves. What, what a freeing and wonderful truth it is to be able to confess that. And John's gospel will bring us to a place where we can confess that truth with, with even greater personal confidence and joy. I, I, I was lost. I was wandering. I was very angry. I was vengeful. All of these things. And what happened to me? Well, the love of Christ was set upon me, and that changed everything. We live in a world right now where identity confusion abounds. This gospel gives us identity. Who are you? Who am I? I am one who's been loved by Jesus. I am one who's been loved by Jesus. Everything else can fall underneath that pales in comparison to that. I am the one who's been loved by Jesus. Through trials I may face, through disappointments, through discouragements, all of those things, I can sit there knowing that the Word made flesh, the one who was before all time, who steps into time in order to bring redemption, He's the one who comes and who has loved me. And so John helps refresh us in that kind of truth. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is the author of this book. But that's not the total picture of authorship, is it? Because while John was the human author, this gospel, like all other scriptures, is ultimately sourced in a divine author. The Apostle Paul makes that clear to Timothy when he tells him that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. We say it each week more than once, don't we? The scriptures are read and what do we say? This is the word of, we don't say this is the word of John. Say this is the word of the Lord and our response is thanks be to God. We don't say this is the word of John, thanks be to John. This is the word of the the Lord, thanks be to God. Now now in our hands, we know we hold a translation. We, We don't hold the original manuscripts that were first written. But we also know even as we can preach from the CSB and have an ESV uh, note-taking journal back there on the back table, we know that the king's word is the king's word no matter what language it's translated into or copied down from. We come to our Bibles with confidence, affirming the absolute inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. This is God's word through his chosen human messengers like John for us. So so God in his triunity, God in his trinity-ness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is precisely and purposefully active in bringing us this word of revelation. And so so what I want to do here, just real briefly, is I want to read one description of how we can think about the Scriptures. This is from a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But let me read this description of what it means that the Scripture is God's word to us. It's a a big description. It's it's very rich, um, and it's wordy. You know, but, but to talk about something as significant of the, as this, we would expect it to be a bit wordy and a bit weighty. It, it ought to be. It's, it's just that big. So listen to this statement, each piece. Scripture is holy because God, as its ultimate author, commissions just these texts to play a vital and authoritative role in the triune economy of covenantal communication whereby the Lord dispenses His light and life. He goes on to say, The Father initiates, the Son effectuates, and the Spirit consummates the discourse the Holy Scriptures preserve in writing. Scripture is a means of God's self-presentation, 
a collection of diverse forms of discourse that taken together are ingredient in the extraordinary ministry of God's Word by which the risen Christ announces the gospel, administers His new creation kingdom, and imparts His light and life to readers made right-minded and right-hearted through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now that's just huge, but it should be huge. We trust that through the Scriptures, having been made right-minded and right-hearted by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, it is God Himself who is speaking to us. John is the author of the Gospel of John, but above and over and through John, God the Father, Son, and Spirit are active in the creating and bringing and awakening of this truth for our hearts. So, so the Scriptures are the exact words that God means to communicate to us through the human personalities that He chooses. That's why the Gospel of John sounds different than the Gospel of Luke or, or Paul's letters or something else. This is truth through human personality, but it is God's perfected truth as it comes through His chosen agent so that God gets exactly what He wants in this Word to us. So this means that when we sit under John's Gospel, just as when we sit under 1 Samuel or any other, any other text from the Scriptures, as we do that, we expect something. If, if I sit with my wise old friend, I expect something from that conversation. I will be affected positively. I just know I will. Right? If I sit with my Bible, or if we gather under the word elevated on Sunday morning, which again is why we move a pulpit in here every week, so the word is the, the thing that's elevated. If we sit under this elevated word Sunday by Sunday, we expect something. Because in the Bible, God talks to us. God speaks to us. And there is no greater voice and there's no other voice that we need to hear so badly. I, I need that divine word which brought creation into existence. I need that word to come alive in my heart and draw me out in a posture of yielding and redeeming fellowship with God Almighty. So, so we come to John's gospel expecting to be renewed because here the performative word of the Lord is affected upon us. God is speaking. So authorship. God so moved through the Apostle John, in all John's genuine personhood, God moved through John so that we have God's own divine word to us in this book. And one of the ways we know this is God's word is this word acts that way. It just acts differently. Right? You read it, you preach it, you hear it preached, and the scriptures do stuff to you, don't they? Right? More than we read the word of God, it reads us, as the saying goes. The truth knows us. Right? This truth unpacks our need, unfolds the solution found in Jesus Christ, calls us to obedience. What this book says we bend our knee to, not because it's religious history, but because the one who's putting breath in our mouths right now speaks to us through this breathed out word from God. So that's, that's author. That's author. We'll move forward. We could talk a whole lot more about that, but we'll keep going. Author. John, human author. Obviously, though, this is part of the divine compendium of God's revealed word to us. Now, secondly, let's talk about the date of John's gospel, um, which might not sound all that exciting to talk about, but I think, I think you'll find it's, it's edifying. Uh, so we have the question, when did John write this? And in, and in a sense, it's a little bit hard to narrow, narrow a specific date. Um, we can say with very broad certainty it was written between AD 55 and AD 95, just because of what we know about John's life when John lived and died. Um, but, but we can get a little bit more specific um, and say probably this gospel was written more toward at least the 80 and 90 AD end of things. 
And that's because there's this little clue in the gospel with regard to, to the name of the Sea of Galilee as a geographical reference point, which actually, which actually ends up being a reference point for us in, in time, in history. Um, so, so the Sea of Galilee, uh, John actually clarifies which sea it is he's talking about in chapter 6, verse 1, and then there's one other reference, uh, chapter 17, I forget. Um, he, he clarifies what sea he's referring to by calling it also the Sea of Tiberias. So he'll say the Sea of Galilee, and we, I think it's even in parentheses in our translation, the Sea of Tiberias. And that name clarification um, has to do with Herod Antipas founding the city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee in A.D. 17. And, and by the 80s, then, the name of the sea had, had changed in terms of its public reference from the Sea of Galilee to the Sea of Tiberias because of that town that, that Herod Antipas had founded there. So, so John has to clarify for us in places like chapter 6, verse 1, he, he knows the name is Sea of Galilee. We're actually used to that from the other Gospels. But because of the time when John writes, at a popular level, the Sea of Galilee has fallen out of regular usage in terms of a reference point, and it's now referred to as the Sea of Tiberias because that town is there. And that gives us a, a reference point in terms of other written records that we can go back to and discover when that became kind of a popular way of speaking about the Sea of Galilee than the, than the Sea of Tiberias. So, so if we're going to get as close as we can to putting a stamp on the time here, again, it seems most likely that John wrote this probably in the 80s, early 90s, uh, which means that, that, that John wrote this as an old man. Which again is something for us to think about just in terms of, of John the Apostle and his ministry. He wrote this extraordinarily profound gospel for us as a man who was near the end of his life. And so, and so if we just think on that, especially as we move further on in age, it helps us to, to remember the fact that our gospel work is never done as we're following Jesus. For the disciple, as we abide in Christ, as this gospel will call us to do, as we abide in Christ, we're always called to serve Jesus in the various spheres in which we occupy as long as we live. There's, there's no retiring from serving the master of the universe. You know, there may be changes in how it looks. Right? An active public ministry may shift to a very active personal private ministry of prayer, for example. Changes in form and function happen. Just persevering faithfulness alone is something that we can be called to as time goes on. But John was probably quite old when he wrote this, just like Daniel was about 92 when he was thrown into the lion's den. Arguably the, the highest expression of faithfulness in Daniel's own, Daniel's own ministry there in Babylon was, was, was found there at the very end of his life. And, and so that just helps us think about life as followers of Jesus. There, there's no retiring from a faithful life lived before the king. Things may change as age sets in, but there's no quitting. There's no quitting. And even as we consider the date of this letter, that we, we, we bring to mind that John wrote this, not just as an older man, but he also wrote this in the midst of a tumultuous world. So in A.D. 66, the Jews rebelled against the Roman occupation, leading to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the dispersion of the Jews. Uh, that would have been religiously devastating uh, for many of, the, many of the Jewish believers of the day. On the larger world scene during this time, it would have been during John's lifetime that Mount Vesuvius erupted. Remember that? Destroying Pompeii. That was when, when John was alive. Uh, and then it was also during this time that the Romans under Emperor Claudius, they attacked Britannia, as it was called then, founding the city of Londinio, which is modern-day London. Right? 
And all, all this during the days of John's life. There were wars, there was tumult, there was tumult, there was destruction, volcanoes erupting, all of these kinds of things as John writes this gospel. And, and, and you have to wonder, obviously John wouldn't have an understanding of things going on on a global scale like we do now, but he would have known about the destruction of Jerusalem, the displaced believers, all that was going on there. What would John have thought as he wrote the words of Jesus in, in, in chapter 14 where Jesus says, my peace I give to you. I do not give you peace as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. In the midst of tumult and fear, John writes good news about Jesus, and it's good news about peace that's much different, much bigger, much more comprehensive and complete than the world could ever offer. And it's peace that we still need in A.D. 2023. Jesus is peace. The world's still at war. Still natural disasters. But Jesus brings a lasting rest, a peace that preserves us while we wait for his return. When, as John will write for us in, in his revelation, in the book of Revelation, when, when the Lord will come and make all things new. We look forward to that day. But until that day, we're, preser- we're preserved, as we know, this Lord of peace in the midst of tumultuous times. It's easy for us to think that following Jesus in our own time is as, as hard as it can be. Right? And it can be hard, no doubt. But it is in the the context of difficult perseverance that Jesus' disciples have always been in the business of serving him faithfully. Just as John did in the writing of this letter. So in terms of of, of basics, that's something there to reflect on with regard to date. We have the author, we have the date. John the old man in the midst of a world of tumult. And then to finish for today, let's just say something about the purpose that John has in mind as he writes. And actually, uh, his purpose is something we're familiar with from Easter Sunday because we talked about it then a little bit. We saw it at the end of chapter 20 because uh, we had the discourse there around Thomas and his own process of coming to believe in the resurrected Jesus. You remember that? Um, And it's the end of that chapter, that that account with Thomas where, where John gives us his purpose statement for writing it where he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, John's very clear on this point. The whole, the whole point of his gospel is to compel us forward in our, in our gospel trust, in our gospel faith, in, in, in believing that Jesus is the Messiah, which means that Jesus is the anointed one. Christ is the Greek word for it. Messiah is the Hebrew word for, for anointed. So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one set apart by God as the ultimate deliverer, ruler over his people, the one that we trust in, and he's God's own son. He's the one who is intimately identified with God the Father himself. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but when we think about Jesus as as God the Son, uh, it helps us just to have a, a context for thinking through how that sonship idea would, would, have, would have been first heard in the century into which John is writing. For us, son is immediately, uh, immediately attached to a, to a biological relationship, and of course that, that was true then as well. Uh, but there was something more to that, and that sonship was also identified with role. Uh, so for example, if, if, if you were a carpenter, uh, you, your son would be a carpenter, which is how Jesus, we see him identified that way, don't we? Jesus is the son of a carpenter. Right? There's an identification of role there. Here's Jesus as the Son of God. He's being revealed to us in a unique, divine sense. 
So John wants us to pick up, pick up on both of those things. Not only is this God's anointed one, but this is actually God himself come in the flesh to us. He's the one that we need, our deliverer, the one potent to save, all of these kinds of things. And so we get to the end of John's gospel and he's saying, I'm writing all of this stuff, all of these things for you to think on, for you to meditate on, for you to speak about and consider so that you will be believing. So that you will be believing that God, that Jesus is the anointed one from God. He's going to bring the deliverance we need. That deliverance, that, that kingship that we saw was, was, was there with David, but incomplete with David. Remember, David is God's anointed. It was there, but it was incomplete. It's complete now in Christ, and he's God's own son. This is the one who has the power. This is the one who has the authority. This is the one who ultimately uh, can affect the new salvation hope that has been promised. And we know, don't we, that there's nothing more important in the whole world than knowing that Jesus is God's anointed one. He's the one God chooses. There's nothing more important than that. And there's nothing more important than believing in him because in him we have life in his name. We need life. We feel our need for life. There's death around us. Things seem to decay. Even in our own lives, we face personal struggles that can be deep and difficult. But in Christ, there's something opposite of all those things that go backwards from life. In Christ, there's the one who draws us out in life itself and secures us in that. We need to believe in that. I wonder if you felt your faith to be weak as of late. We go through those seasons, don't we? You feel the, the crumbly sense of the belief you wish was strong. Fear can take over, confusion starts to percolate in our hearts, distractions tangle us up, and our trusting gets a little brittle, and our believing gets a little stagnant, and our faith falters. What we need is this truth. What we need is to see the glories of Jesus, and whether that means we, we believe in Jesus truly for the first time, or whether it means we're brought along in a renewal of belief in Jesus, the resounding truth of the gospel is brought to bear upon us as this, as this gospel builds up our faith and trust in who Jesus really is. So this was written so that all of us who are here may be believing in Jesus, may be trusting in Him. So there are some basics for us as we get into John. Uh, for this week, the author is John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The author is God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Right? John was written in a time when there were wars and troubles, difficulties all around. John himself uh, would have been struggling with whatever, whatever uh, difficulties that come with age as he was becoming an older man. And it was also written for one specific purpose, and it's a purpose that matters more than anything else, more than any conditions around us, more than any public opinion around us, more than anything else. This was written for the purpose that we would be believing in Jesus. Um, next week, we will indulge in one more pre-reading study. Uh, but for now, we'll, we'll just rest in this truth. This word of God is God's word to us. And we will find life here in Jesus as we believe in his name. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Father, that is... That is our desire. Whether we're, we're coming with a felt weakness or we say we believe help our unbelief, whether we're coming from a place of, of unique quickening in our own heart where we feel our belief to be strong in these particular days, Lord, we come knowing that above all of that we, we need to know Jesus more. We need to understand more what it is that He's the one You've sent into the world to save us from our sins. We pray that as we consider the realities of that, we would be bolstered in our faith, that we would be spurned on in our belief, and that ultimately we would find great rest for our souls.
through the person who came to effect that for us, the Word made flesh. So we ask this in His name. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.